Um, but actually, it is a very exciting space because there's so much research going on and there's a lot of um, questioning. And I love that. Um, and, um, and I'm learning a lot and I'm learning a lot with the patients. And I think that's what's really wonderful um, and rewarding um, doing long COVID clinics. Welcome to another episode of Be an Awesome GP, where we look for ways to do general practice even better. Today, I am absolutely stoked to be sitting down with Dr. Jenny Huang, who is a GP who is working in a GP-led long COVID clinic. She received her medical and specialty training in the UK before coming to Australia at the end of 29, just in time for the black summer and the pandemic. She is passionate about preventative healthcare, as we all are in primary care, and for her, she has found different paths open up to her in pursuing increasing health literacy for communities over the years. Welcome to the show, Jenny. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for inviting me. So I was actually really excited to get you on the show. I saw a presentation about uh, the long COVID clinic you guys run uh, at Wonka, the World Family Doctors Conference. I thought, gee, that's a fantastic initiative. That is something where a lot of us feel a little disempowered and like we're not offering enough for our patients. And I thought I'd get you guys on the show. You can tell us how you do it and perhaps we can all learn a thing or two. So starting us off, can you introduce yourself and uh, tell us about where you work? Thank you. Um, yeah, so so I'm Jenny um, and I work at Banksia Medical Centre, um, which is in Western Vic Regional Practice um, in Geelong. Um, and um, I, it's owned by um, Dr. Bernard Chu, who, um, who started the Long COVID Clinic. Um, and I do have a little expert, excerpt from him that I'll read on his behalf. He's a very busy man, um, so okay. I will read on his behalf um, of, of sort of, um, yeah, letting you know about what, how, how he started it. Um, but, yeah, so, so we did see, as you all have, um, the needs of patients who suffer from long COVID, either not able to access care at the tertiary hospital level, um, particularly now these days, um, the funding's just not there for tertiary hospitals anymore. Um, and so there is a drive towards primary care. So we do need to know about this. Um, and so the patients also just simply didn't fit in anywhere. And so after advocating it at various levels, including federal government and state government and primary health networks, um, none really responded meaningfully. So Bernard decided to just do something about it. Um, so Geelong Long COVID Clinic was born after having discussing it with um, our local specialists who are actually, you know, very interested in long COVID in all the biophysiological mechanics of it and share the same understanding and mindset um, to help patients um, and decided to come together with, with us to look after them um, because otherwise they would have just been lost in the system and just continue to suffer. Um, we are actively involved um, in protocol setting, treatment alignments, um, and also future service planning, working, working closely with the Department of Health. Um, and we are also one of the major community research sites now for four upcoming long COVID researchers. Um, there's a lot um, coming up and it's all actually very exciting um, to see something that's been so uncertain 
um, and actually quite representative of a lot of post-viral syndromes that's been sort of um, not looked at in the past. Um, it's all sort of surfacing and um, giving us a lot of um, interesting facts about um, the immune system that we didn't really look at before. So Cause there's that's a lot that. There's a lot to be excited about there because you guys are the centre of excellence at the moment for long COVID recovery. Like you're a GP clinic tied in with other specialists, but you are a centre of excellence. And I, I really think that's a fantastic initiative. The The other point you made there about uh, post-viral syndromes, and I think this was in the talk at Wonka, but the fact that previously, yeah, if you got EBV, maybe we thought you had a post-viral syndrome, but we're really learning a lot in that space from COVID that we apply to other things in the future, I expect. Yeah, um, I, I actually often say to um, our long COVID patients, in a way, give them positivity too. But um, the pandemic, it's got its silver linings. Um, we've had a lot of things in, in terms of coping and IT ways too. That's all sort of changing um, how the world is working and I think it's really important that we actually do continue to accept and be open to new ways of working because I think until that point everyone had been feeling a bit stuck um, in more ways than one. So I imagine there were a number of logistical challenges when the clinic was opened and it sounds like you guys took an approach where uh, multiple people were involved, multiple organisations. Tell me about what does a GP long COVID clinic look like? What does that look like? Um, in terms of the process, so um, so there's a national, well, was um, national task force, um, and Bernard was um, involved with that, and that's where we also um, sort of aligned ourselves with the protocol setting. Um, so um, we have a questionnaire for patients to fill out in terms of how what their symptoms are in the background, um, what investigations they've had. Um, and then they send that through to us. We do triage it um, just to see if they do fit the uh, criteria from their point of view, obviously. Um, and then, and then yeah, they, they book in with us and we see them. Um, okay. and, and I guess going on to that, we see them and we help them. Um, I, I, I guess so for myself, I listen to them. Um, that's how I usually start. Um, and all of, all of the patients, I think they really need that space and time to be heard um, and go through all the journey that they've been through. And um, so we tease out all the little details and, and sort of um, discuss about what, could be long COVID, what could be contributory factors, and usually it's not black and white. Um, and um, and then we direct them to the multidisciplinary team. That is that is the most important part of this process. And I think it's easy to forget that in the face of the complexity of dealing with a new issue like long COVID is that one of our most powerful tools, one of our oldest tools, is to sit and listen, and that actually has a really powerful therapeutic effect. So I'm glad to hear that's, that's a huge part of your process. Um, what do you do with the patients once you've, you've sat, you've listened, you've assessed, and you think, hey, this might be long COVID? Uh, what services might you tie them in with or, or proceed them to? What, what's the flow pathway? Um, so there are two 
particular allied health professionals that are very important in their recovery process. Um, and um, that's facilitating the pacing program that um, I think we will increasingly learn more about. Um, so they are facilitated by the exercise physiologists and the physical recovery part and um, occupational therapists or neuro um, neuro psychologist, uh, those are a bit of a rare breed, um, but OTs, um, they do pretty much exactly the same thing. Um, and they do the cognitive side of recovery. And so together, um, those two are very much the foundation of um, setting the foundation of that reducing prolonged inflammation process. Um, the other specialists that are involved with are respiratory physicians, um, our local ones, and cardiologists, neurologists, psychologists, uh, psychiatrists, sorry, um, because of the um, multifaceted, like it's, it's such a multi-organ um, condition. Um, and they help us tease out. Um, often it's more like the COVID infection triggers something that the patient was actually predisposed to. So um, Interesting. most of the con. Yeah, most of the condition isn't actually new mm -hmm. in the sense So people, um, I, I do like to stress not to treat it as if it's um, something that's going to be so different and be apprehensive about it, um, but be just as you will do clinically um, relevant investigations, um, not over-investigate. It's very important to sort of discuss with the patient and make them form decisions. But um, the cardiologists really also help us with the POTS, the postural orthostatic high, uh, hypertension, uh, tachycardia syndrome, sorry. Um, and the respiratory physician does the lung stuff, but also the sleep studies, because it has been shown that it does um, affect brainwave activity as well, um, the infection. Um, yeah, and the neurologist, there's a lot of headaches and migraine, similar type of um, uh, neurology um, at play as well. Now, for other GPs who might be sending a patient to your clinic, uh, is there a, a suggested workup? I'm sure you already have this system in place, but suggested workup, bloods you want, any studies you want prior to the patient attending your clinic? Um, well, actually, um, I do. I have found that um, most, pretty much, yeah, pretty much all GPs have done their due diligence and have done the investigations that are necessary. Um, so because a lot of times the patients, what they're plagued with is fatigue. And so often, um, you know, the full blood count, the thyroid function, the diabetes, that's all been checked. Um, and uh, there is um, lung function tests um, that can be quite useful just to ensure that there isn't um, any obstructive, restrictive patterns that's developed because of the infection, because um, that can happen. Um, Often these tests do come back normal. And um, I guess what I do, what we do explain is that um, I guess we haven't really consolidated or developed the tests that, that look for the things that we haven't known to look for. Um, and so the tests that we do have at the moment, in, um, that's not in research settings, are the ones that we're familiar with. Um, so just because they're normal, it doesn't mean that something doesn't exist. Um, so that's where we tease out the other side. Yeah. You may not have this data, but how long is a patient generally engaged with your clinic? Are, are you seeing people who've been there from day one? Do they exit around 12 months? So I know that's a hard yeah, question. Yeah, variable. Um, I mean, we started back in May, June. 
Um, so, so we're seeing, we're now starting to see the sort of the, um, the, 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 what would you, the prognosis, um, and it's roughly around 10 to 12 months if, if they are fully engaged with the um, pacing program. Um, often we have observed that people do get stuck if they don't proceed with it. Um, there's a very big mind, mindset change that needs to happen. Um, we, we do encourage the patients to continue that relationship with their GPs. We are there more as a consultation and updates. So it's very variable when patients come back. Um, they come back when themselves or the GP want to see if there's they feel a bit stuck where they are and they want to have a bit more update. And and I guess that's also exciting for us because while when we first started, I hadn't anticipated that we would actually have anything to give. Um, you know, I, I was a bit like, oh, I'm going to be burnt out. Or, um, but actually, it is a very exciting space because there's so much research going on and there's a lot of um, questioning. And I love that. Um, and um and I'm learning a lot and I'm learning a lot with the patients. And I think that's what's really wonderful um, and rewarding um, doing long COVID clinic. Okay. And I think that's really, there's actually a really powerful thing you can tell patients is that the chance of recovery at 12 months is quite reasonable because that, that gives them something. It gives them something when they came to you with essentially nothing sometimes. Uh, what's on the horizon What's on the horizon? Um, well, there's, as I said, there's four research streams that we are going to be helping to take on. Um, and there are, you know, drugs and things that are um, being trialed. But at the end of the day, as I explained to patients, um, one of the easy scenarios to relate to is when, um, when someone's had a heart attack, um, the myocardium might be affected during that time of um, lack of blood supply and the cardiologist might unblock that blood vessel and the blood flows, but that heart muscle has been damaged and really it's that cardiac rehab after that gets that function back. And so one does need to focus on that um, and not go, oh, well, once that, that's, you know, and, and, and that's why I think um, long COVID is an opportunity for the primary care clinicians to really drive home again that preventative as well as that MDT work. And, the you know, um, I think we've really medicalized um, conditions these days, and it really helps drive that message back again about, you know, looking after our health in a really solid patient way. <laughs> I like to talk about challenges and principles on this podcast and I often find the greatest challenges help people draw a, a principle that guides their daily practice. Are there any particular challenges you guys have faced that you want to talk about or any principles you've drawn from the challenges you faced in the clinic or in general practice in general? It doesn't have to be long COVID clinic. Uh, I guess um, Bernard is very creative. Um, so I, I can't pretend to say I know what he does to make all this run very smoothly. Um, I, I know that I have encouraged my own friends, colleagues who are GPs um, to, to cause, um, those who are interested to take up some of their work because, um, you know, they're in other parts of Melbourne or things like that where patients, you know, patients are driving four hours to come in to see us and 
that's very tiring um, for them. Um, and wow. um, yeah, yeah. And um, especially because the hospital ones are closing. Um, so I think really it's, it's finding how to build. <laughs> I think that's what's um, really um, uh, patients, uh, uh, colleagues have found it hard to set up. Um, we set aside um, one to one and a half hours of appointment time for each patient. And that can be where it's difficult logistically um, for practices to find the resources to allow that to happen. I like that. I, there's some stoic principles that underlie that in that the obstacle is the way. You've had this challenge of treating long COVID and in addressing that, you've found a way to make patients regard GP so highly they will travel four hours in a car to see you. And I, I mean, people, people do that before long COVID clinics, but that is such a, such a magnificent endeavor that you guys have achieved. Um, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity. There's opportunity in problems. There is always a creative way to look at crisis. I love that. Yes. Um, is yeah. there anything else you wanted to talk about? Anything, uh, passion projects, fun fact, anything you wanted to talk about while we've got you? Um, I guess um, I do have two other passions and uh, I'll mention it just because, um, well, one of them particularly perhaps here is um, uh, I am an IMG. And, um, and so I think in terms of workforce and that whole rural regional support, this, I think can also play in part into that. And I think, you know, that whole supporting IMGs to to also start something in the very remote areas that they do have to work in um, can also really empower themselves, but also empower the community that they serve. And they'll feel so purposeful too. Um, so there's that. Um, I mean, IMG is a whole different, <laughs> other different topic. Um, That's it. And... Well yeah and um the other thing that i am um, i am uh involved heavily with is climate health and i i do very much um see how this interplay is very um you know linked that um the the, the pressure on our natural resources had has in part to do with the pandemic and how we were um able to also enjoy nature at the time and um, again, that's a whole different topic, but um, I do see how climate health and um, the pandemic and ongoing care can also, they're, they're also very interlinked. Because I think at Wonka they said healthcare is about 5% of global CO2 emissions, so it's certainly not nothing. And even simple steps like the right type of asthma inhaler make a huge yes. difference. Yeah, I'm really, really glad you know about that. Um, and again, I have... Um, I found that really empowering too, where um, uh, when I first came, I, I was working in another practice and it was near a university hospital. Um, I was already back in the UK um, involved with greening up primary care practices because that was already starting back in Bristol. Um, but I was a bit apprehensive, obviously come to a new country to start talking about it. Um, but I was encouraged the first time I remember was when a nursing student came and wore a T-shirt saying there's no planet B. And and then I yeah, started a conversation about inhalers because she was there for asthma. And then I guess then I started to also feel more 
confident in knowing how to gauge the conversation around education on the correct asthma diagnosis, correct inhaler technique, reviews, and that's most important as well to ensure that um, we're not using the Ventolin inhaler, um, which has huge amount of, um, you know, oh, carbon emission equivalent of like um, a, a good car journey from Liverpool to London. Um, so it's, and, and patients who have lung conditions actually really are willing to give it a try um, because the ingredients are the same and they want to look after the, the air that they breathe in because um, they also see that it's changing the climate and the pollen count and the hay fever is going a bit haywire. Um, so they do see that more when you explain it to them. Well, I think that's a lovely topic. Perhaps our listeners could let us know in the comments uh, how they're greening up their practice or any tips they have for reducing the CO2 emissions at their practice. Jenny, I have to run, but it has been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. I think everyone can draw some principles from what you've talked about at your long COVID clinic. And boy, the IMG issue and the environment issue, we can certainly come back to it sometime because those are, those are meaty topics with a lot to dig into. Thank you, Chris. You give everyone such um, great opportunities to, yeah, you're, you're celebrating us all. So that's, that's so important. Thank you for doing this. You have a lovely day. Being an awesome GP is targeted at general practitioners in the Australian context. It should not be taken as formal medical advice and you should consult your own clinician for any medical matters. Opinions are those of the presenter or guests and do not necessarily represent any organisations.